with me as we honor God's word. I will be reading from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that their, their, these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an, extraordin an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statue and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mary Lynn, for scripture reading this morning, and if you haven't already done so, you can go to Daniel chapter 6 as we're walking through uh, the book of Daniel. This is uh, kind of the midpoint through the book, and this is the last real chapter of narrative. So after this, it's all prophecy stuff, so we're not going to do all that. I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to go through that. Uh, but we are here in Daniel chapter 6, and this morning we're at the probably the most famous chapter uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's the story of Daniel in the lion's den, of course. It's one of the uh, best-known stories, most beloved stories by children. Uh, Sunday school teachers love to teach the story. Uh, kids love to figure, try to figure out what it was like, you know. I mean, growing up in church, I don't even remember the first time I heard the story of Daniel. Uh, I'm sure you're probably in that same 
uh, category. I mean, we know the events. We know Daniel prays, and the, the people uh, have this injunction to get him uh, in trouble, and then he gets thrown into the lion's den. Uh, then he's, of course, he's not eaten. And, you know, somewhere within the child of each one of us, there's that wonder, you know, what was it like? Was he sleeping next to one? Did he have like a lion for a pillow? You know, like we just don't know. Uh, the story has encouraged a lot of people through the years. Why shouldn't it? I mean, the good guy wins, right? The bad guys, well, we didn't read it, but the bad guys get torn to pieces. And that's the part that the children's Bible never talks about. Why? You know, they throw the bad guys in and they get torn up. But throughout the story, we need to find out what is, why is this here? Of course, our study together is hope in a hostile world that Daniel learned how to survive and how to thrive in an environment that was increasingly hostile towards God. Let's begin uh, with a word of prayer as we start to unpack this chapter together. Father, I thank you for uh, stories of the Bible, events of the Bible, things that many of us have heard for a number of years. And Lord, if we're not careful that we get caught up in the 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 timing of the events or the, the different little aspects of the events that we miss the overall picture on why, why it's there. Lord, I pray that you will help us today as we study these, these verses together, as we study uh, Daniel, as we study uh, who you are, God, and I pray that you would encourage us, uh, that you would help us to live uh, increasingly with more and more hope. Lord, we love you and we praise you for all that you've done. In Christ's name, amen. In May of 2000, uh, there was a, a conference in Nash, uh, Memphis, excuse me, Tennessee, of college-age students, and there was about 40,000 college-age students there, and uh, a pastor, and he was not as well-known back then as he is today, uh, his name was John Piper, all right, uh, you've probably heard of him, he's got a, a, a church up in Minnesota, he gave a sermon uh, that at that conference that would become probably one of his most famous sermons, uh, he spoke on the idea of not wasting your life. Uh, just to give you some details, he spoke to them about, you know, that you didn't have to know a lot of things in life but in order to make a lasting difference, but you just had to know a few glorious things and you had to be gripped by them uh, and actually be willing to lay down your life for them. And so in the sermon, he gave the listeners a comparison that many have, have talked about since then and how it changed their lives. He talked to them about two women, uh, one named Ruby and the other one named Laura. Uh, they were both missionaries in Cameroon. Uh, the thing about them was they were both around 80 years old. And they had determined that they were going to live out their lives spreading the gospel to people who needed to hear it. And so when most of the people their age had already retired to vacation homes and living a retirement life, these two ladies were using what life they had left to tell others about Christ. And so Piper told the audience that his church had just found out that those two women had been killed in Cameroon. Uh, their brakes of their car went out, and their car went over an embankment, and they had died instantly in a crash. He then asked the, the audience, was that a tragedy? These two women who, unlike their American counterparts who had begun to live lives of retirement in Florida, but instead chosen to go to a foreign country to spread the gospel, were instantly at the feet of Jesus. And he said, was that a tragedy? He then said, no. He said, let me read to you what a tragedy is. He then took a page from a reader, local reader's digest, and he read about a couple named Bob and Penny who had taken early retirement in their 50s. 
They had moved to Florida. They had enjoyed cruising on their 30-foot boat, playing softball, and collecting seashells. Piper then said, that is a tragedy. And he pleaded with his listeners, don't buy into the dream that they're trying to push. He said, you don't want to stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did and show him your shell collection or show him your boat. He then said, don't waste your life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Daniel did not waste his life. Most scholars believe that by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, that he is a man probably between the ages of 80 and 90 years old. We often look at him as a young person here, but when you study the history of the Babylonian Empire and then the Medo-Persian Empire, you see that Daniel is an old man. And he wasn't collecting seashells. And he wasn't a pastor or a minister. He is working, living his life, and working until his last breath for the sake of God and his glory. So what I want to do is kind of walk through this story, a famous story that we know, and kind of hit some of the highlights about Daniel and about the God that Daniel served. And the more I read this, the more I see that Daniel was not just a guy who claimed Christianity or claimed to follow God. He was someone who truly believed God and truly believed the word of God. I'm not saying he just read a devotional each morning with his cup of coffee, but he was someone who truly, really believed what God had said. And we, and we know, we've studied this before, that he, he, he probably had the, the letter from Jeremiah that talked about living in the city and, and thriving in that city in captivity. Maybe he had memorized words like Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Or maybe in that same song, he, he remembered words like, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. See, I've read those verses numbers of times, but, but Daniel, I believe, believed them. This was life and death for him. So how do we get to that point? How do we get to the place where after 80 or 90 years that we're still searching after God, we're still following his work in, in our lives, and we're not consumed by our retirement investments or our big houses or our country club memberships? And you say, well, pff, yeah, but Daniel is like a super saint, I mean, I, I'm not, and I can't do that. Well, there's a reason that this is here. And remember, we don't read our Old Testament without our New Testament. And Daniel is this, this precursor, if you will, the shadow of something greater. Yes, he did live, and yes, he really lived and spent the night with the lions, but he, and he really did make decisions. But let us never make Daniel the hero. Let us never worship Daniel. Let us worship the person Daniel worshiped. God, more specifically for us, Jesus Christ, the hero, that he alone deserves the worship. So let's take a look here at Daniel chapter 6, and there's, there's uh, I think it's 20, 
28 verses in this chapter. We're not going to hit every single one of them because we know the story so well. But we're just going to walk through this, if you will, and kind of hit some principles here about how to continue to follow after God after 80 years. How to continue to walk with hope in a hostile world. The first thing that I have is that Daniel is a pilgrim. Daniel is a pilgrim. Look at verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, the word satrap is another word for prince, a governor, if you will. So these are some officials. We introduced Daniel several weeks ago. We mentioned that Daniel and others were, were kind of taken out of Jerusalem and then taken out of the, the nation where God was the center of everything. And they're now carted off into Babylon where there's a nation that doesn't know God. There's a nation that doesn't want to have anything to do with God. And so now Daniel is taken out of that. Now he's in the hostile world. That's why the title of our series is that. And the whole book of, point of the book of Daniel is this, this conflict between the kingdom of man and its king versus the kingdom of God and its king. And which king are you serving? And so Daniel, as we study, we, we, we probably know he studied Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote letters to the, to the people that were in captivity. And he told them, hey, go into the cities, engage the culture, but I want you to remain distinctive. I want you to remain God's. God's people, not God's. They didn't become God's. He said, don't isolate yourself into little Christian ghettos. Don't assimilate yourselves into the broader culture and just kind of let everything go. But engage it, but remain God's. And so now for years, Daniel has done that. We've seen it over and over and over again in all the previous chapters. That Daniel lived as an exile, as a pilgrim. He knew, hey, the place that I am is not my home. It doesn't matter how good it gets. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter how successful I am. This is not my end destination. This is always going to be a foreign place. And so he follows the words of Jeremiah. He prays for his city. He moved into a city. And then when we see Daniel, each chapter, he seems to be kind of like rising to the top within the city. Look at verse 1 again. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one. Now remember, this is not a pastor that you're reading about. This is an everyday, normal guy who goes to work on Monday morning, and he puts in his hours, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, with people around him who are not believers, and he's serving God faithfully, and he's moving up. See, don't think that the ultimate job for a believer is to be in ministry, because you're all in ministry, every single one of you. You're there, you're living your lives as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Daniel actually shames even pastors in the way that he lives. So here he is, placed as one of the top officials. And if you remember back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had the, the dream of the image, you remember that, uh, and the different parts, and Daniel told him they represent different kingdoms, and Daniel served under Nebuchadnezzar. And then in chapter 5, we saw Daniel serving under Belshazzar, and now he's under Darius. And he's still there. He's still faithful. As the kingdoms change, I can just see Daniel going, well, here's another one. I'm going to, God, I'm still serving you. doesn't matter who is the king. And I say, for us, it doesn't matter who is the president. We serve God. 
So we read that he's placed there. Now, look at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find the grounds for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. See, when you read this, you read that Daniel made it to the top. And he, he's placed with his, these princes, if you will, over the entire kingdom. And he placed them even above the other two, because he said there's three, and he wanted to put Daniel on top of them as well at 80 years old. He's not the young guy. We don't even know how old the other ones are because he had an excellent spirit. And so what happens? Well, they become jealous. Whoa, wait, time out. You're going to put this Jew on top of all of us? You're, why would this slave be our ruler? So look at verse 4 again. The high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. They said, we can't find anything wrong with him. We're gonna, all right, listen, we're going to watch him for several days. Let's see what he does. You know, he's got to mess up. And they're watching him, and they said, hey, what did you come up with? I, I didn't get anything. I mean, the, the dude is like slick as a whistle. Like he's clean. What in the world? Daniel lived what we would call above reproach. You remember when Paul told Timothy about the qualifications of, of an overseer, also the word elder there, or the word pastor, it says an, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband and wife, sober-minded, so on and so forth. But the above reproach, that's the idea here of how Daniel is living his life. And the words above reproach literally carry with it the idea that, that, that someone is trying to grab them, but there's nothing that they can grab a hold of to bring them down. Like the, it just keeps slipping out of their grasp. That this person is living in such a way that no one can pull them down. Daniel is so faithful in his worship and is so faithful in his character and following God that they literally cannot find something to take him down with. So what do they have to do? Look at what it says in verse 5. We can't find any ground for complaints unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They said, we can't take, any, take him down with anything, so we're going to have to make something up. We're going to have to create a problem. We're going to have to create something so it becomes illegal so that we can trap Daniel. And would to God, Christians, that that can be said of us when we go into our workplace tomorrow. That, that, that we live our lives in the workplace, that there's no underhanded dealings or there's no fudging on expense reports, that there's nothing that anyone could bring you down with. And that other people would literally have to make something up about how wrong your faith is in order to trap you. But wh why is Daniel so astounding? Like, what makes him better? He's just like anyone else, but notice what it said in verse 3. The king noticed this. There was an excellent spirit within him. An excellent spirit. This was like, uh, this phrase was kind of like the Old Testament's way of saying that Daniel was walking in the spirit. That the Spirit of God was with him. 
Galatians 5 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Daniel is living his life in the Spirit of God and walking with the Spirit and walking with God. If you're doing that, if you're living your lives by the Spirit, there's nothing that others can get a hold of and bring you down with, and you're going to be a blessing to other people. But let me say, you're also going to be on the receiving end. People are going to be gunning for you. Not everyone's going to like you. I know we would like that. I just wish people would like me. But if you're serving Christ, if you're serving God, it's just not true. People are not going to like you. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the expectation of every Christian is persecution, suffering. 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy, hey, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, not might be, but will be. The trials are going to come your way. Hardships that you're going to have to endure. People are going to come against you simply because you follow Christ. Jesus' life was characterized by suffering and persecution. The apostles' lives are characterized by suffering and persecution. And why do we think that we're different? See, don't buy into the lie that Christianity is all love and comfort. This world is not our home. Daniel lived as a pilgrim. He knew that Babylon, he knew that the Medo-Persians at this point, that these empires were not his home. Paul tells us in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. For from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject, subject things all things to himself. Daniel lived like a pilgrim. And now the people are after him. So these guys can't trap Daniel in any other way. So what do they need to do? They need to trap him in connection with his faith. So they go to Darius and they, and they petition, hey, Darius, listen, we've got an issue. We need, to, we need to kind of fix this. Look at verse 6. The high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king. Oh, King Darius lived forever. All the officials and all the different groups of people agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they go and they make the decision. Hey, king, Darius, listen. We, we, we want to we know that you're the best, you're a great king, and what we, what we think you should do is establish this kind of like law, this decree here, that says that you're going to kind of be the mediator, that people can't just pray to their gods, they got to come to you, and then you can go, you can kind of be in between there, and, and, and you're going to be between the people and gods, and of course Darius is, is just going to go to his head, and be like, oh yeah, that sounds great, then I get to be in charge, and so Darius signs the law, and notice it says, 30 days. I'll come back to that. He signs the law. 30 days. This is going to happen. Now, look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel was not only a pilgrim. I put Daniel was a prayer. It's not a typo. It's actually prayer. He was someone who prayed. 
A few things that I want to show you about Daniel and his prayer here in verse 10. The first one is he prayed toward Jerusalem. Notice it says he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and then he prayed. I mean, was, what, what, what is he doing? Is this kind of like a Muslim thing where, you know, you have to face Mecca and you have to bow ceremonially toward five times a day? Was that what it was? Well, no, there's nothing that suggested that. That God's not being more gracious to Daniel because he faced uh, west when he prayed. So then why does he do this? Why does he open his door, or excuse me, his windows toward Jerusalem? Some said, oh, well, you know, he did it because he knew the people were going to be watching him, and he didn't want them to have to, like, sneak around, so he was just like, hey, look, I'm doing it. I don't think that's the case. I believe that Daniel knew about events of the past. I mean, we, we, he was a Jewish person, and the Jewish people were trained early on in the law of the Lord and in the chronicles and the things that happened. They knew their own history. Like, it's the same as us. We know our history. We know who the first president of our country was, or we know who the greatest president of our country, Abraham Lincoln. And we know who the different people are, right? So I'm sure Daniel knew of the people of his past in his nation. And back in, in, in 1 Kings 8, and I had the verse up here, but I kind of just summarized them a little bit. Uh, Solomon finishes the temple, okay? And when they finished the temple, they had this huge prayer, this huge dedication ceremony of the temple. And, and I, this was interesting because Solomon was praying as a dedication prayer for the temple of the people uh, uh, of Israel. And this is what he prays. He says, Solomon's praying. He says, if they, the people of Israel, sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, which I find great that even in the Old Testament, there's none righteous, you know, for there's no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. So even Solomon is praying, hey, if, if our country turns away and you, you actually take them into captivity, which is exactly what happened. He says, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city you have chosen. Verse 49, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain your cause forgive your people. And I see that's exactly what Daniel's doing. That Daniel is facing, because maybe he even remembered this prayer of Solomon, who said, hey, listen, when you're carried away, when you're in that captive place, and you think about what you've done and how wrong you've been, and you turn your heart back toward where you've been, God, please hear our prayers. Forgive us. So Daniel prays to God. And I, and I believe that when we get to chapter 9, I believe we'll see this even more, that Daniel's prayer was, God, forgive us. God, forgive us. He prays toward Jerusalem. Secondly, I wrote down that Daniel prayed defiantly. Daniel prayed defiantly. And I think that this is really that hinge point, if you will, Back when we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, we talked about the fiery furnace and how the miracle was not escaping the fire. The miracle was the moment standing before the king that said, King, we will not bow. No matter what, we're not going to bow. 
And I think that this is that same moment for Daniel. Because it says in verse 10 that Daniel knew the document had been signed. He says, I don't care what the edict is. I don't care what the injunction is, the statute. I don't care what the new law is saying. I don't care that it's now illegal. I'm going to pray. And I think that the lesson is pretty clear. I mean, there may come a time in our lives when what we believe as Christians here in America becomes illegal. When the laws passed fly in the face of Christianity. Are we going to continue to serve God? And can I submit something even more to you? That prayer is always defiant. Prayer is defying the God of this world. Prayer is saying to the God of this world, I'm not going to submit to you. I'm not going to follow you because I have a God who is greater than you. And I'm going to call on his name. And it doesn't matter what you throw at me. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Look at it this way. This is a 30-day law. This is not forever. This is just 30 days. I mean... How many of us would look at it and say, 30 days or a den of lions? Hmm, I think I'll wait. <laughs> Just 30 days. God, you know, I, I listen, I, I understand. God, God, I'm praying on the inside, but, you know, I think I walk around. God, I'm praying, but no one knows it. <laughs> Good. No one knows I'm praying. Sitting at the restaurant doing the headache prayer, you know, God, forgive us of the food, bless the food. You know, we do it. Daniel says, he has every excuse. He has every excuse not to pray. And yet he prays. We have no excuse. And we don't pray. Last week, we had a prayer meeting, 5 o'clock. And I would say most of us were not there. Now, listen, listen, listen. I understand that some people have jobs. Some people have prior commitments that you must attend to. And, and, and those, all those people fit inside a phone booth. And for the rest of you, you just didn't come. Ah, I don't like the format. I'm not comfortable praying in front of people. So I said, well, then come and let's change this up. Let me, let me give you the reason why we don't go to prayer meetings. Because you see that verse and you say, 30 days? Psh, I haven't prayed in six months. You know why we think like that? Because for us, prayer is like leather seats in a car. You don't really need them. Oh, it's a really great addition to have, but it's not necessary. Listen, prayer is not the leather seats of a car. Prayer's the engine. Prayer's the engine. And without that, you're going nowhere. And if you truly believe that your prayer life was the engine of your faith, then you wouldn't be able to wait till the next prayer meeting. You would be praying all the time, which is exactly what Paul tells Timothy. 
pray without ceasing. And you would be begging for others to pray with you. It's quiet in here. He prayed defiantly. He knew. Yet he did it. Just wait 30 days. No, I'm going to do it. The third thing I said was Daniel prayed consistently. Look at what it says in verse 10. So he went to his house where he had windows in his chamber. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Just like he always did. That there was nothing that was going to stop Daniel from praying. And for some of us, there's nothing that's going to start us praying. Until maybe it's facing the lion's den. God, please, rescue me from this. Please, Daniel, it doesn't say that Daniel is, is praying that God is rescuing him. He just says it gave thanks. God, thank you for this opportunity to pray to you. Dude, you're getting ready to go in the lion's den. I don't think he said dude. But you're getting ready to face the lions. What are you going to do? I'm just going to pray. Thanks, God. Thank you for face, me facing the lion's den. This new decree didn't cause Daniel to pray. This new decree didn't change Daniel at all. He was already praying. He prayed defiantly, knowing what the law had said. But he also knew what the Bible said. He also knew what the scripture said about lifting up voices to the Lord. And that the, his prayers had become such a habit that his enemies knew that if we're going to make a law against it, we know we're going to catch him. Daniel's problem, if you will, if you want to see what the problem Daniel had was, he was predictable. He was predictable when it came to his prayer life. They knew, hey, listen, if we write this about his, his prayers, if we write this about him serving God, we know we're going to catch him in this. Does that describe you and I? Now listen. I understand there are some awesome things that God could have done in this moment. I would love to read that Daniel opens the window and he kneels down and the people are watching him. And all of a sudden this blinding light comes and causes the enemies to not be able to see Daniel praying. And that they're blinded. They're like, what did he do? I don't know. I couldn't see. That's not what happened. God wasn't wanting to preserve Daniel from the trials. He was wanting to preserve Daniel through the trials. If I could say that God is not committed to your comfort. God is not committed to a life of smoothness and easiness. But I will say God is radically committed to making you more like Jesus. And he will do that most often through suffering. He'll take you through trials. He will grow you. You will learn. And I listen, we go through our mountaintops and we go through our valleys. But I don't really hear people talking about how much they grew spiritually while they were skiing on the Alps and yodeling with the goats. But I've heard so many people speak about how they grew through a storm, through a valley of life. See, there's this, this Christian urban myth that says God will not give you more than you can handle. And I challenge you, find that in Scripture, because you won't. God 
always gives you more than you can handle. And every parent in here says, amen. He always gives you more than you can handle. God, you're asking me to do something with resources I don't have. Exactly. So then you will fall to your knees and you will ask God for help. And God will speak grace back to you and says, no, I'm not going to deliver you from that. I'm going to walk you through that so that you will see that my grace is sufficient for you. You will find God in the midst of that trial so that when you find the answer, when you finally get it, you will, it will not be you who gets the glory. It will not be the smartness that you have or the great person that you are, but it will be God who gets the glory. Daniel prays consistently. And there's one more thing about Daniel being a prayer. I put Daniel prays submissively. Look at verse 10 one more time. There's that phrase that we just kind of jump over every time. He got down on his knees. He prayed on his knees. And I think, it's a, I think there's a point to that. I think it makes it a point to mention that. That this is, this is an outward posture of an inward attitude of his heart. He was doing in life what, what Paul says every person's going to do one day in Philippians. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, there's sometimes I don't think we kneel enough. I don't want to make too much of this, but I don't want to make too light of this either. Well, Pastor, it's really about the heart. It's just the, the posture of the heart that matters. And I, I agree with that. Absolutely, it's about the heart. Because if you're kneeling on the outside, but you're standing on the inside, then forget it. But you can't also say, well, because I'm kneeling on the inside, I don't really kneel on the outside because that's just you know it's wrong i'm doing it inwardly i just don't do it outwardly listen <laughs> apply that to marriage try that with your spouse you know honey <laughs> i love you on the inside so the external manifestation that you really you don't really care about that do you <laughs> yes we do so i was a good husband this week and i sent flowers to my wife just because. Then I went home and I had an argument. <laughs> so then I knew the flowers coming the next day were going to make up for it. Yeah. <laughs> Kneeling is the true posture of any Christian. Saying, God, you're the master. And we're the empty-handed servants. You're not my servant God, you're not my errand boy. You're the king of kings. And you're the Lord of lords. And you're the king of all creation. And the Lord of the whole universe. And I guarantee you that if you were physically standing before him today, you would hope that you were on your knees. You would probably be flat on your face. Worshiping him. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for worship is the word proskuneo, which literally means kiss the ground. Maybe if we're in a posture of prayer on our knees, that maybe we would remember more prominently who we are in this relationship. 
Daniel was a prayer. Number three, Daniel was at peace. Now, verse 11 down to verse 24, there's the big story, okay? Daniel prays, he then gets brought in, and Darius says, did you do this? All right, you're going to be thrown into the lion. This is the whole story of the lion's den. And he gets thrown into the lion's den, and he, he, sp he spends the night there, and then Darius, you know, the whole story. We know the story. When we read this, you might pick up on it, but when you read through this chapter, if you haven't noticed, Daniel's kind of like a side character here. Like he gets one speaking verse in the whole chapter. It was the next morning after the lions. That was the only time he spoke. The rest of the chapter it was the, the, the satraps and the princes conspiring against him. Darius, you know, Daniel's just kind of a side person. Especially when you get to this point, the climax of the story. Uh, look at verse 13. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, but the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard this, these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then the men came in. No, remember, you can't do this. So verse 16, the king commanded Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Now, right, if you stop right there, you're like, okay, there it is. He gets thrown into the lion's den. We're at the climactic moment of the story and when you read the next verse verse 18 then the king went to his palace spent the night fast like wait you, you you would think daniel is in a den of lions what is going on and the narrator you would think would just take you down into the den. and daniel was now with the lions and he had simba come over this way and aslan come over that way. you know and it doesn't mention anything the writer does it. The writer follows the king. He's like, listen, Daniel's in the lion's den. He's fine. We'll, let's go follow the king. Let's ride, find out what the king does. What does it say? The king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Darius has everything the world has to offer, and he can't sleep. Daniel has everything taken away from him, and he sleeps so peacefully that there's nothing to report about what happened. Like, oh, he's there, he's fine. Daniel, or excuse me, Darius is terrified when he should have been at peace. But Daniel was at peace when he should have been terrified. Why? Well, notice what it says. Verse 20. And he came to the near of the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, king, I have done no harm. There's a bug here, sorry. I, there was a bug, I'm sorry. That's not in the verse. <laughs> I was terrified. No, no. Daniel was at peace when he should have been terrified. You know why? Because God sent his angel. God sent an angel. Isaiah 26, 
You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusted him. Paul says in Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. Listen, being in a den of lions and being at peace, that surpasses all understanding. Daniel's at peace. Why? Because of whose hands he is in. God sent his angel. Daniel is living up to his name. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And God has judged Daniel, not in punishment. God has judged Daniel and said, hey, you are mine. You are a faithful servant. And I'm going to deliver you from the mouths of lions. I personally believe that Daniel had the same resolve that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. And I believe that Daniel may have gone into that lion's den thinking, this is it. And later on, you'll read in verses 24 and following that God judged those who thought they were innocent. And he doesn't deliver them from the lions. So in the end, the only thing that mattered was God. Not the king's law. Not that this was illegal. Not even the king's fulfillment of judgment. It's God's judgment. Because once again, the king could not kill who he wanted to kill. And the king could not save who he wanted to save. To the last thing, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, so this Daniel prospered. Last thing is Daniel prospers. We know how the story in Darius runs in the morning and he finds Daniel still alive. And he says, hey, Daniel's God is the true and living God. And he throws the accusers, and we, we kind of just skipped over that again. Verse 24, the king commanded, those men who have maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That's never in the children's version. I think he put it in there because he was showing you. These are not tame. Well, see, the lions were just, you know, cubs. And they were just, you know, quietly just sitting there with Daniel. No, 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 no. No. This is showing these are not tame lions. That, that God did miraculously stop the lions, Okay. But I want to get to the fact that Darius decrees that God is the living God. And this is what happens when you're faithful to the very end. That people look and notice and say, hey, this is why God so often puts Christians through trials and suffering. So that the world looks and says, wow, they have someone who's helping them. And you say, yes, I have God. And they say, your God is the real God. Such a powerful testimony 
to be able to live through a trial, to be able to live through suffering, to just show that you follow God. So much stronger than words. We saw this a few weeks ago, but the mention is given again. Look at that last verse. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That last, there's that guy again, Cyrus. And we saw him before. He's the guy. And if you study the history here, Cyrus is the guy who comes in and he allows an entire group of Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem. And we have the stories of Ezra and the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall. And remember, God had always promised the Israelites that the time of exile wouldn't be forever, but they would return. Listen, God promises here for us that our time on earth won't be forever here, but that he's returning and he's going to send us home. And so now Daniel is under another king, faithfully serving, walking with God. And as far as we know, Daniel never went back to Jerusalem. We don't know. He's never mentioned as going back. But he lived his entire life under exile. And there's some of us here who will live out our entire lives before the Lord returns. But there's some of us who could be alive in that moment of his return. Either way, are we remaining faithful? God delivered Daniel from the lions, just like he delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So do we conclude that God always delivers his people? No. No, we can read church history. We can read that every one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. We know what church history says. We know what Fox's Book of Martyrs, the countless number. So what do we make here of this story? And I finish with this. Remember, the Old Testament is the shadow of the reality to come. So what does the New Testament tell us? New Testament tells us, hey, there's coming a day when God is going to pronounce a judgment, a verdict over everyone. And he's going to take the ones that believe in who he is and believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And and he's going to pronounce a verdict on us that will say that my instruments of judgment will never touch you. That you have been declared innocent. You are not guilty. Not because of your greatness, but because of Jesus Christ. And you are now righteous. You could be in that group. You're going to be outside of that group. If you're outside of that group and God casts his judgment, it's going to be subject to horrific things. So we look at Daniel and we see what Jesus did. Like Daniel, Jesus was innocent. Like Daniel, Jesus was accused on made-up charges. Like Daniel, Jesus was also thrown into a tomb, if you will. But unlike Daniel... Jesus went all the way to death. This is why he's better. This is why we worship Jesus and not Daniel. I put my faith in Jesus. When I put my faith in Jesus, I'm now united with him. So that when God looks down on me, he says, I am for you. I'm not against you. There's no condemnation for you. And on that day, when God pronounces final judgment... Every person who's believed on the Lord Jesus, every person who has placed their faith in him and what he did, God says, not guilty. Come out of the lion's den. 
you are now free to enter into the joy of the Lord. If you're not in that group, judgment's coming. All that matters is if you are in Christ. Hey, Christian, today, that should give you a resolve. That should give you a, a purpose that says it does not matter what the world takes away from me. It does not matter what law gets passed. Because I know they can never take Christ away from me. Oh, I might suffer here. And I leave you with Paul's words in Romans. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you have the resolve to continue to walk by faith? I'm going to do something a little bit different than how we normally close. I want to invite you, if you're able, or if you desire to, to join me on my knees in prayer. God, we, we, we kneel before you. We sang the song earlier, is he worthy? God, you are worthy. Lord, we are not worthy. You are God over all creation. You are Lord of lords and our King of kings. God, we call you Father. We call you friend. Lord, what a powerful reminder that Daniel, even when faced with death, still knelt before you because he served you above all. God, so many of us will not face the persecution that Daniel faced. But we do live in a world that is hostile towards you. We live in a country that is becoming more hostile towards you. I pray that we would resolve now to kneel as Daniel knelt and said, God, you are God. What can man do to us? God, I pray for our nation. I pray for its success. I pray for its continued growth. But God, let us also live as pilgrims, as exiles, Lord, because this is not our eternal home. We submit these things to you. Work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we love you. It is because you first loved us. We pray these things in the name of your precious son, his holy name, his name above all names. We pray that you would continue to encourage us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen.